Hello, podcast fans. Did you uh, worry about us? The uh, Planetary Society website went through a major upgrade in the last uh, few days, About actually about a week and a half, two weeks ago. We didn't realize until we were a few days in that uh, that upgrade had messed up the feed, the podcast feed of last week's show. We hope uh, most of you have now heard it. Uh, we know that it became available on uh, Saturday, just this past Saturday. We are very sorry about that. As you'll hear, we are uh, still driving on with our uh, campaign to save planetary radio. Uh, your response so far, many of you, has uh, just been fantastic. And uh, we certainly are much closer to making sure that the radio show is not going to uh, disappear into the uh, ether or whatever the uh, Internet equivalent of that is. Uh, but we're going to keep this campaign up for just a little bit longer. You still have time. If you've been considering making a donation to support the radio show, let me assure you that it will be not just much appreciated, but is very much needed. Uh, that's about it. Oh, one more thing. We want to uh, have a shout-out, uh, say hello to two of our youngest listeners, two of the uh, perhaps youngest fans of Space Exploration who catch Planetary Radio, I'm told, every week. Neil Gupta and Bailey Godowski, this one goes out to you. The End of Ulysses, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. The Ulysses we have in mind was supposed to die months ago, but this pioneering spacecraft, the first to study the poles of our sun, was only shut down last week following a heroic and ingenious effort by the European and American team behind it. In a couple of minutes, we'll welcome back Nigel Angold, the Mission Operations Manager for the European Space Agency. Bruce Betts is also back with a look at the night sky and a special contest that will begin our celebration of the Apollo 11 moon landing 40 years ago. Bill Nye, the Planetary Guy, is here to deliver this week's commentary. I'll be right back. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the Planetary Guy here, Vice President of the Planetary Society. You know, in a couple of weeks, it's going to be the 40th anniversary of landing on the moon. And this will be a big deal. There'll be a lot discussed about it. It'll be very exciting. But in the meantime, almost half a century later, uh, we've got a lot going on. People want to put spaceports in states like Wisconsin, let alone Florida, Virginia, Hawaii, California's Mojave Desert, Oklahoma, New Mexico. People are not just going to launch rockets. They want to have stuff come back down. It's going to be a place to come and go from all over uh, the United States and maybe North America. There's big business out there, big business. And NASA right now doesn't have an administrator. Maybe by the end of next two weeks, NASA will have an administrator and a deputy administrator, Lori Garver, who was the representative of the Planetary Society in Washington for a few years. And these people have got to make a bunch of decisions about whether or not NASA should be in the commercial space business providing rockets to carry communication satellites into orbit and so on? Or should it be in the exploration business looking farther and farther out into space, taking perhaps people someday to Mars? And these decisions have got to be made pretty soon because there's just a lot of money involved. So while we're all celebrating and getting ready to celebrate this amazing adventure on the moon, 
we've got to start once again thinking to the future and how we're going to sort out how tax dollars are spent and how commercial dollars are spent to achieve goals like finding life on other worlds and making sure our phones work any time of day and night. It's exciting, but you got to think about it. Meanwhile, I got to fly Bill Nye the Planetary Guy. A nearly two-decade-long deep space mission ended last week with the transmission of a command. So that is the end of the Ulysses mission. The transmitter has been switched off. However, the receivers are still on, so should anybody wish to transmit commands to the spacecraft, it can still receive them. However, that is unlikely to happen because there is minimal scientific gain to switch the, the spacecraft back on again. We wish a fond farewell to our friend that has kept us in fantastic data for the last 18 years, 8 months and 24 days. That was Nigel Angold of the Ulysses Mission hosting a live farewell webcast from the Ulysses Command Center at the Jet Propulsion Lab. By the way, we have a link to the webcast at planetary.org slash radio. No one believed the spacecraft would still be returning data well into 2009. That the Solar Explorer lasted so long is a testament to the ingenuity of engineers who kept finding solutions for problems that were never anticipated. It's a story that is repeated in mission after mission, with Apollo 13 providing the most famous example. I asked Nigel to return to planetary radio not just to mark the end of a magnificent mission of exploration, but to help us get a feel for the practical magic he and his colleagues around the world practice. Nigel, job well done. Congratulations. Thank you, Matt. It's good to be back, albeit at the uh, end of a, a mission, which is rather a sad occasion, but... Um, I think we've uh, done a pretty good job of keeping this mission going, the Ulysses mission going for 18, 18 plus years, and uh, it's good to be back talking with you. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, that's putting it mildly. You know, when we spoke almost a year ago now, I don't think you had any idea that things were going, that you'd be able to sustain this spacecraft as long as you had. Am I right? Yes, that's correct. Um, we, we thought uh, last year that we were probably going to be going maybe to uh, the beginning of July 2008. Uh, well, that was our aim, and that was what we broadcast. We had a press conference in Paris telling everybody this is when we were going to end the mission. We, we thought that was going to be about it. We thought we were going to either run out of fuel or we were going to freeze the fuel. However, you know, we thought we would see if we could just get a little bit more out of it by trying to make sure we didn't freeze the hydrazine in the, on the spacecraft. And so we uh, looked around for ways where we could do this and uh, still get some data. One of the first things we looked at was trying to keep the internal temperature of the spacecraft as high as possible. If you recall, uh, one of the reasons why it was getting colder was because our X-band transmitter had failed and we'd switched to an S-band transmitter, which is a lot lower power output. Because of that, we weren't dissipating as much heat inside the spacecraft and therefore mm. the, the internal temperature of the spacecraft was dropping. Using the S-band transmitter was a way of getting the data back down, but the, the uh, internal temperature was getting cooler because of that. I, it's just interesting to me, to me once again how a spacecraft has to be considered as a system as a whole because uh, obviously you took this 
so-called waste heat from the X-band transmitter into account all along as a part of what you needed to keep the spaceship healthy. That's exactly right. One, one of the really fun aspects about designing a satellite or, or spacecraft and flying it is that it is always a compromise. There's always trade-offs between power, thermal, mass, so many different things. Changing the power a configuration also affects your thermal configuration and and so you have to juggle a lot of things all at once and and in fact in this last year this is exactly what we've been been doing i was i was getting to coming to say that okay we we've now got the s-band transmitter on and in switching the s-band transmitter on that takes away a certain amount of heat from the internal internal part of the spacecraft as well so we had to limit the amount of time we switched we had the the s-band transmitter switched on so every time uh, we were out of pass we switched the transmitter off and we would we would take shorter uh, dsn tracks uh, rather than take 10 or 12 hours deep space network of course yeah Mm -hmm. we'd we'd take four or five hour passes instead of 10 or 12 Mm mm-hmm and that obviously then means that you start to reduce your data return, which maybe we'll get into in a minute as well, because uh, those are the kinds of things which have actually ultimately brought the, the mission to an end. Mm. And you talked about needing to keep this the hydrazine, which was the fuel that was uh, you were using to direct the spacecraft, right, uh, powering your thrusters, that it was going to freeze in the lines because you couldn't run your heaters anymore, much less the X-band transmitter. Well, we we do have heaters on board, but unfortunately, um, some of the pipework is wrapped with heaters. But even even then, there are various cold spots, and and the cold spot we were, which we were really worried about actually was very close to the radiator plate of the X-band transmitter. And because now the X-band transmitter hasn't been on for eighteen months, that suddenly became a, a very cold point in the spacecraft, uh, which we had no control over, other than using secondary sources of, of uh, heat, such as the tape recorder, uh, <laughs> which, which actually um, we kept moving backwards and forwards, even though our data rates weren't high enough to be able to play back data anymore from the spacecraft, another limiting factor on, on, on our data return. Uh-huh. So we couldn't play back data from periods when we were no longer tracking the spacecraft. Um, so we got much bigger gaps, mm. which we couldn't record through. But we would still run the tape recorder in order to get just that little bit of extra heat from another unit close to these, this cold spot in the spacecraft. So that was an, another way of, do, of, of keeping things warm. And then we, we looked in, and, and saw how much hydrazine we had left, which wasn't a lot. And, of course, we need this hydrazine to point the high-gain t- antenna every few days back towards the Earth in order to keep our data rate as high as possible and 512 bits per second for the most part. And... and, and uh, <laughs> And, and let me let me stop you for a moment. Five hundred twelve, not five hundred twelve kilobits. Five hundred twelve bits. That's right. Okay. In fact, the the maximum data rate that we have on board the spacecraft in real time was only one kilobit. So in the in the recent months, that's been halved. And like I said, at five hundred twelve bits per second, we can no longer get uh, data back from a tape recorder on board because we'd need higher ba- data rates than that. And very recently, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we we were dropping down to 256 bits per second. Mm. So again, another another factor in 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 determining when the mission was going to end. We looked at the the, the amount of fuel that we had on board, and we decided that okay, if if the fuel is cold in just a, in just a couple of spots, and we were talking about about uh, maybe 
a couple of centimeters of pipework which happened to be connected to a uh, what we call a standoff how how the a pipe gets connected to to a, a piece of structure on the spacecraft in, in order to hold it in place. Mm-hmm. You try and thermally isolate the pipe work from its surroundings. There is some some thermal drain through these standoffs. It's still like a heat sink. Exactly. It's just a little heat sink. And so there's a short piece of pipe which gets colder than the pieces of pipe work either side of it. So we decided, well, what what if we just kept flowing hydrazine through these, this cold spot and not letting it sit there? And, and cool down for, for hours or days. We just keep moving the fuel through it. Maybe we can uh, stop it from freezing, prevent it from freezing. So, so we said, okay, well, let's let's see what we might be able to do. And so, we actually started firing our spin up and spin down thruster every two hours, hmm. um, just to move a little bit of fuel through the through the pipework. It didn't do anything, didn't change the attitude, didn't change the orbit, and didn't really change the spin rate either. I mean, there was a very slight imbalance in the two thrusters, which made uh, made us have to do a, a small correction once in a while. But uh, essentially, it, it was a do-nothing maneuver, just to flow f- fuel through the pipework in order to stop it from freezing. And we were successful because even at the end of mission, we still had fuel on board, which kind of surprised us because we thought we were probably going to run out. Uh-huh. Um, but actually calculating how much fuel you have on board is is not a, an exact science. Uh, you have to count, count pulses and uh, from the beginning of mission and, and, and hopefully know how much each pulse uh, uses in terms of fuel. But we didn't run out and we didn't freeze the, the fuel. It couldn't have been very far away. I mean, this is this is one of the this is one of the one of the few regrets. It's like it would have been really nice to know exactly when we ran out of fuel and, or when it when it froze. We didn't get that opportunity because we, we actually ended up switching the transmitter off as opposed to letting the fuel run out or freeze. It would have been nice to know, but that wasn't, that wasn't a really big deal. We'll hear more from Nigel Angold of the just-ended Ulysses mission when Planetary Radio continues. Hi, I'm Lou Friedman, Executive Director of the Planetary Society. You've made Planetary Radio one of our most successful programs. Our valued listeners depend on it for weekly space-related news, entertainment, and inspiration. However, today's economy is forcing the society to make tough choices. As a result, the future of Planetary Radio is now on the line. Planetary Radio urgently needs your financial support to continue. We know this program is important to you, so we're asking you to make a donation dedicated to keeping Planetary Radio alive. Please visit our webpage at planetary.org radio. Tax-deductible donations of $50 or more will be rewarded with a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Our listeners are a thoughtful and committed team. I trust you will help sustain Planetary Radio so we can continue to explore new worlds. Please extend your lifeline of support at planetary.org radio. And thank you. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. The Ulysses spacecraft ended its record-setting mission of solar exploration just last week, long after anyone thought it would remain active. Nigel Angold is the European Space Agency's mission operations manager. He is telling us how the Ulysses team managed to keep the spacecraft alive and kicking for so long. The tricks included the regular firing of thrusters to keep fuel from freezing. That would have ended the mission. Let me ask you before we move on to the significance of this last year that you managed to get out of the spacecraft, um, those burns that you did, the the firings of the thrusters every two hours, 
was that just set up automatically or did somebody have to send the command to the spacecraft to do that every couple of hours? Okay, that's, that's an interesting question. Well, we didn't have somebody there every two hours and, and, and we didn't have a pass every two hours to do that. So we had to do something automatically on board. Now, it just so happened that we had a program on board called CONJ. It's short for conjunction. What this was on board for was to um, ensure that we could maneuver the spacecraft uh, at times of conjunction when when the sun, the earth and the spacecraft are in alignment uh, which happened a few times during the mission not too much because we're typically out of ecliptic and therefore you don't get this this alignment. But nobody ever dreamt that it would be used for this purpose. Absolutely not, no and, and it, it involved a little bit of uh, refinement in, in how we used it but uh, it was another unique way of, of using uh, something on board the spacecraft which it w wasn't designed to do. We had to get quite creative and that's one of the reasons why in actual fact there's a number of the operations team have been there, uh, been on this project since launch which is quite unusual when you think that this that we've been uh, going for more than 18 years now. In fact uh, on Tuesday when we had our last pass there were six or seven people in our mission support area who who were there for the first command so hmm. amazing really but it's a testament to the fact that we've had a lot of different things go on and, and it's never been a, a stagnant static mission we've had to be creative right the way through and there's been always been engineering challenges to to meet remind us how long were you with the mission uh, I joined the mission in uh, October 1989 so it's uh, nearly 20 years now just about a year before launch up until now. Mm -hmm. But there, but having said that, I mean, I've been getting a lot of emails from people um, who've said that the majority of their career has been uh, involved with Ulysses. Some people started their careers with Ulysses 30 years ago um, in, the, in the design of detectors. One of the things that I, I, I've really enjoyed is, is seeing is seeing the fact that there's so many careers have been hmm. uh, dependent upon this mission, which makes me feel good that we've kept it going for so long. Also, one email that I got which said that they have just got funding for a new postdoc to start working on, on Ulysses data, and that makes me very happy because it means that the, the odyssey, the legacy, continues after the mission has ended. So uh, I'm, I'm very pleased to see that the data we've been gathering uh, will be used in, in years and decades to come. Yeah, that must be extremely satisfying. And you certainly have reason to be very proud. What, where do you go from here? You personally. Matt, oh, I'm going to go to Disneyland. Oh, <laughs> you could. It's yeah. right down the road. You're, you're right. Well, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do from here. Um, I've got a, a number of months to, to, to think about it, but uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks' time, I actually will be going to do some teaching at uh, a space camp in, in Germany uh, with, with uh, the European Space Agency. They run a, a space camp for, for, for their kids, and um, I'm going to be having a lot of fun with about 120 children, actually learning about manned spaceflight. Obviously, I've been involved for, for 18, 19 years with a, with a mission which has got had very little to do with manned spaceflight except for the launch, which is a whole other uh, story. But uh, it, it, it'll be fun uh, trying to engage with these, these kids to, to uh, show them what maybe is the future of, of, uh, of human, human exploration. 
have a wonderful time there, and uh, during the summer, uh, you certainly have earned it. Uh, and uh, is there a chance we'll be able to uh, hang on to you here, uh, not just in the States, but uh, hopefully here in Southern California, JPL? Uh, that's an interesting question. I, mean, I think the last time I was, you asked me a similar question, and I said I wasn't you know, quite sure where, where home is anymore. I'm, I'm going to go mm-hmm. home, but I'm not sure where home is. Um, there are possibilities. I could go back to Europe, um, but, I, I, but also staying uh, in, in this area interests me, and, and JPL is obviously a inspiring place to work and there are a number of uh, missions coming up and certainly some some joint missions between ESA and NASA uh, ExoMars and and some some new Mars programs coming up um, Herschel and Planck have obviously just been launched and, and there's both European and um, US involvement in those so there's there's plenty of collaboration going on which I'm very pleased to see because Ulysses certainly wasn't the first of uh, US and and Europeans to collaborate on, but it, it, it's definitely been a pioneer in that regard, and I'm so pleased to see that going on because it's 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 the the way we have to do business. Best of luck with those. Uh, I'm, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if uh, uh, many of those might not need uh, another resourceful uh, engineer and uh, mission manager. We knew we'd have you back on when the mission ended. We just didn't know it'd take this long for that to happen. Well, thank you. I'm I'm very pleased it has taken that long. And uh, maybe I'll be back on your show sometime talking about some completely different mission. I hope so. That'd be delightful. And uh, we'll just finish with this as we get ready to head into this week's edition of What's Up with Bruce Betts. I have sitting next to me here, well, all I can say is stay tuned, folks, because it's a special Ulysses Prizes for uh, the trivia contest coming up in just a few moments with Bruce. We've been talking with Nigel Angold, who, as you heard, has been with the Ulysses mission for nearly 20 years. He has been the mission operations manager of late for the European Space Agency, which, of course, partnered with NASA and particularly JPL in this uh, extremely successful mission that revealed uh, so many previously unknown facts about uh, the star at the center of everything in our solar system. Uh, We'll be right back with Bruce in just a couple of moments. It is time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here's Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. Happy Fourth of July weekend, which is when we're recording this. And happy What's Up. Why, thank you. As always, Matt, it's great to be here. <laughs> You'd rather not be here because it's a holiday. I understand. But it's nice to be sitting across the table from you. So. Oh, and, and it's always with you, man. Let's, let's talk about what's in the night sky, shall we? Please. We've got Saturn in the evening sky over in the west, looking like a kind of bright star, kind of yellowish, and uh, hanging out below Leo. Jupiter now rising in the middle of the night in the east and very high up in the south in the pre-dawn, looking like an extremely bright star. And we've got the brighter than anyone else, Venus, hanging out in the east in the pre-dawn with Mars looking much dimmer and reddish above it. That's what what we've got cooking for the... uh, the night sky. Let's go on to this week in space history. 1979. Two interesting things happened this week in 1979, 30 years ago. One, Voyager 2 made its uh, flyby past Jupiter, turning all sorts of groovy data. And Skylab re entered the atmosphere. Oh, is that splattering right? Splattering Australia. 
it didn't hit a cow or anything, right? That was some meteorite I'm thinking of. <laughs> you know, of we've it. had a lot of good random space facts on Skylab. But <laughs> there, there were pieces that were displayed at the, the Miss Universe contest that year because <laughs> it was in Australia. There was the guy who picked up a piece and ran back to win a $10,000 prize for the first piece brought back to a San Francisco newspaper. But uh, no, I think cows were okay as far as we know. Very nice. That's a, been a big week in space. I know what's next. So do I. On to Random Space Fact. It was tragic. <laughs> it was absolute tragedy. It was. Uh, but don't worry, the Random okay. Space Fact's not tragic. It has to do with the polar caps on Mars. And the, the kind of random interesting thing is that during the... The, the balmy summer that you get in the Martian Arctic, the northern polar cap is the surface is water ice, but the southern polar cap, the surface is carbon dioxide ice, frozen dry ice. And that doesn't switch places ever? That's just the well, way it is? I won't go with ever, but right now there's an asymmetry in the poles, particularly with altitude, but also wind uh. and such like that. But the south polar cap is actually at a higher altitude, so it stays colder and uh, you, you keep the carbon dioxide... Uh, lid on things. And then, of course, in the winter, when it gets uh, from cold to way butt cold, uh, you <laughs> are freezing out carbon dioxide ice straight, straight out of the, the atmosphere and covering large regions. Uh, the, the polar cap getting bigger and smaller, like you can see on Earth, is primarily carbon dioxide ice. Fascinating. I do want to assure people that way butt cold is a scientific term. Oh, totally. <laughs> it's an, Check any units book. <laughs> Bigger than a bread box. Well, I mean, you got cold, cold and you got butt cold, then you got way butt cold. <laughs> we have to get on to the trivia contest because right, you have something special planned. I do. I have specialness. But first, the n just normal level of specialness. Our previous contest, we asked you, what was the first successful lunar orbiter? How would we do? Very interesting, actually. Uh, and it led me to looking up all the previous attempts because there were a bunch of attempts before the one that actually made it. And we got lots of nice answers, accurate answers. The winning one, though, came from James Brown. Not that James Brown. It's been two... <laughs> no, no, this is the James Brown in Rockwall... Well, maybe it is that James Brown, <laughs> Rockwall, Texas, who it's been two and a half years since he last won the contest, uh, according to my uh, vast database. Luna it's 10. Just in your head, isn't it? No. Oh, no. Okay, thank you. I make it up. It is so it is in my head. Luna <laughs> 10 from the USSR, back in the USSR, April 3rd, 1966, followed by the uh, lunar orbiter put up by NASA. And as was pointed out, not by James, who will be getting a Planetary Radio t-shirt, of course, but by uh, Johann uh, Peter Dam, who's our friend in the Faroe, our Faroe Islands. He said that uh, it was supposed to play back the notes of the Internationale, the communist uh, theme song, and it didn't. It was missing one note. So the Soviet uh, team faked it because they wanted to play it. <laughs> the whole thing was to play it back for the uh, like the 23rd uh, meeting of the... Uh, uh, I forget what it's called, but anyway... They, had, they faked it. They said, here's the song coming from Luna 10, and it wasn't. It was, wow. a, it was a cover tune. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. I, I never 
ceases to amaze me the depth of information yeah i hope he didn't out. make it up but it's i i trust that that's the case they, they don't lie on those islands all right for our next contest winner will be revealed for our special apollo 11 landing 40th anniversary show yep with ray bradbury i'm prepared to say right now he will be our special guest Excellent. for uh, that week of uh, july 20th for that show here's your contest if you had been neil armstrong what would you have said when you first stepped out onto the surface of the moon we will judge this using our skillful host-like judgments <laughs> ranging from the profound to the make us laugh yeah. what what phrase would would you do you think should have been uttered as uh, or or if you did it or your favorite dog whatever what should they have said go to planetary.org/radio find out how to enter and you have until monday 2 p.m. july 13 and then uh, on the, the very day itself, that greatest of uh, days in human history, many people think, July 20th, will reveal the, uh, the winner of uh, this contest, or possibly winners, thanks to Nigel Angold. Now, you might think we'd give you some Apollo memorabilia. No, we have Ulysses mission memorabilia, thanks to Nigel, who Excellent. left us a bunch of shirts. You can hear the shirts in the plastic Here they wrapping. are, here they are. And I would take out the tile. He left us a wonderful commemorative tile which is right here. And I'll just tap this on the table. There it is. Wow, there's radio. So special prizes for probably several of you if you uh, manage to win this contest by impressing Bruce and me. And that's it. Should they uh, give us their shirt size? Well, they could, but they're going to have to take what they can get. <laughs> all right, all, never mind. They're all a little large. We have two for women and three for men. Okay, everyone. Is that it? Are we done? I think we are. All right, everybody. Go out there, look up the night sky, and think about snow globes. Ooh. Thank you, and good night. You ever see uh, Earthworm Jim, where they, they actually explain that the entire universe is in a snow globe? It was a really great episode of that classic show. He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here for What's Up. Next time, we'll begin our salute to the 40th anniversary of Apollo 11, when we welcome back author Andrew Chaikin. Then in two weeks, Ray Bradbury. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Have a great week.